The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org.
So, welcome to the August 25th, 2022 electronic meeting of the Environmental Commission. This meeting is in accordance with executive orders from the governor to affect social distancing and mitigate the spread of the COVID-19 virus. We intend to conduct this meeting similarly to an in-person meeting. However, please be patient if there are technical issues. Public comment will be via telephone only. To speak during any of the public comment opportunities, of which there are two, one at the beginning of the meeting and one at the end, please call 877-853-5243 um, or 888-788-0099 and enter meeting ID number 915-8343-9176. Again, um, the phone numbers are 877-853-5247 and 888-788-0099. And the meeting ID is number 915-8343-9176. This information is also available on the published agenda in the public notices section of the city website and on the broadcast of this meeting on CTN channel 16, AT&T channel 99, and online at www.a2gov.org slash watch CTN. All right. So, um, uh, Galen, would you read the land heritage statement? Sure. I acknowledge that the land the city of Ann Arbor occupies is the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, including Odawa, Ojibwe, and Bodawadmi and Wyandotte peoples. I further acknowledge that our city stands like almost all property in the United States on lands obtained generally in unconscionable ways from indigenous peoples. The taking of this land was formalized by the Treaty of Detroit in 1807. Knowing where we live, work, study, and recreate does not change the past. But a thorough understanding of, on, of the ongoing consequences of this past can empower us in our work to create a future that supports human flourishing and justice for all individuals. And that's the land heritage statement. Uh. Thank you, Galen. Do you want to move on to the roll call? Sure. Okay. Okay, Commissioner Needham. Commissioner Needham. Councilmember Dish. Present. All right. Council, uh, Commissioner Graham. Commissioner Graham. Councilmember Griswold. Councilmember Griswold. Commissioner Colleywart. Here. Uh, Chairperson Brown. Present in Ann Arbor. Commissioner Mursky. Present, participating from my home in Ann Arbor. Okay. Uh, Vice Chairperson Mitchell. Here in Ann Arbor. Commissioner Vandenbroek. Commissioner Vandenbroek, Commissioner Orio, Commissioner Here in Ann Arbor. Okay, 
Commissioner Gib Randall. Here in Ann Arbor. Commissioner Martian. Commissioner Marson. Commissioner Gruber. Here in Ann Arbor. All right. Uh, Commissioner Needrich. Here in Ann Arbor. All right, we have a quorum. All right, thank you, Galen. So the next item on our agenda is the approval of the agenda. So um, is there a motion to approve the agenda as written? Um, Shannon? Second. Seconded by John Mursky. Um, is there any discussion? Raise your hand or speak up. No suggested, uh, no suggested additions or modifications. So um, whoever approves the agenda as submitted, uh, raise your hand or say aye. 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 It passes unanimously. I believe. Um, any no's? I don't. I don't think I saw anything. So no, no abstentions either. So the agenda is approved as submitted. Um, the next item on the agenda is the approval of the minutes from the July 28th meeting. Um, is there a motion to consider the minutes? I move the minutes be approved as um, submitted. Is there a second? Second. Shannon seconds. Um, all who approve of the, uh, the minutes of July 8th, raise your hand and say aye. 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 Um, any opposed? Any, uh, nope. Okay, they passed unanimously. So moving right along here. Um, this brings us to public commentary. So uh, this is an opportunity for persons to speak up for up to three minutes. Please call 1-888-788-0099 and enter meeting ID 915-8343-9176. This information is also displayed on the meeting agenda and video feed. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand one by one using the last three digits of your phone number. In order to electronically raise your hand to indicate your desire to speak, please press star nine on your phone. You will then hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sound so that we may hear you clearly. Please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. And be patient, there is a delay of up to 30 seconds before a connection might be established. Galen, is there anybody on the line right now? Right now, there is no one. Okay, let's wait 30 seconds. Okay. Okay. Is there anybody on the line yet, Galen? There's no one on the line. Okay, then this ends the uh, first public comment period. Uh, there's a second one later on in the meeting around 8.30. Um, so there's no special presentations. Uh, there's no unfinished business. So the next item on the agenda is new business. So um, this is going to be a bit different. Um, um, as you all know, there was a contamination of the Huron River 
uh, by uh, Chromium 6 on July 29th, I believe. It was reported to IGLA on August 2nd, I think. And IGLA started a testing program on the 2nd and the 4th. And it's all, uh, it's all, uh, we've been lucky. Um, I looked into it quite a bit. Um, I asked city staff if they wanted to come and do a presentation about it, but they declined. Uh, and subsequently now you see that uh, um, if you look at the uh, Huron, uh, the best information I've seen is with the Huron River Watershed Council or with the uh, County, Washtenaw County Health, um, you know, Health Department. Because uh, MDHHS and, uh, and EGLA are the primary government regulators um, that are supposed to respond quickly to this sort of thing. So as I'm sure you all know, um, there was, instead of some 8,000 pounds of chromium-6 that released into the river, uh, we only got uh, something like 40 pounds. So a very lower, a much lower number. That's, that's, I'm, sh I'm sure that's just a rough estimate anyway. And so uh, um, if anybody has any questions, we can talk about that. But I thought, uh, given that event, that what I would do is uh, just have an open discussion among all of us on, on various water quality issues. Because um, as you know, we, uh, we've been a little bit quiet since we did the storm on, on water quality issues since we uh, looked at the stormwater, um, um, you know, special stormwater management district overlay um, about a year ago. And we have some new commissioners now that are forming a, a nucleus of the new water quality working group. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to just have a, have a discussion among ourselves about uh, about what, you know, what the challenges and threats are uh, overall for the city's water quality, um, both uh, coming in and going out, and um, and see what we uh, and see what how we all feel about uh, uh, about these various uh, threats and what kind of prioritization we might wish to uh, bring to all these issues. Um, so I think that'll help us get um, centered and oriented. Um, towards making a contribution to the community and city council on these sorts of topics. So I just drew up, um, you know, the, the small presentation that I drew up uh, and posted on Legistar and that uh, Kaylin distributed yesterday. Um, it's just basically a guide for discussion, just to try to structure it a little bit. Now, so we're not wandering all over the place. So um, I'll, I will try to moderate this discussion. Uh, and so if you, like to chip in, uh, please raise your hand at any time. Um, but before I do that, um, I looked into um, into the Chromium 6 issue and I, um, and I attended the rally that was held outdoors up in Milford, um, which was attended by uh, Yusuf Ravi, um, the, the chairman of the Oakland County Commission. Um, Kathy Griswold was there, um, a number of other people from the local, uh, from the statewide, environmental uh, community, you know, environmental NGOs. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, as you all know, um, it was, uh, there was also some potential criminal liability because there was an alarm that went off uh, and uh, 460 times and it was just turned off. And this happened after hours by an employee uh, that wasn't supposed to be there who uh, resigned the next Monday. So. I checked in with Jeff Irwin and Yusuf Ravi about this, and they both told me that uh, in this circumstance, um, 
the investigative authorities with EVA. Um, and it's the attorney general that has the prosecutorial authority. So I think over the next few months, we'll see what transpires here. But I think it just outlines, you know, since uh, we're the major community downstream of Wixom and this tri-bar plant, um, um, I think we, we all need to pursue this as diligently as we can and, and make sure that this, this just doesn't happen again. Because as you know, um, this it was the same, um, the same, um, you know, um, corporation that contaminated the Huron River with PFAS for many years, and uh, you know this basically happened because they have an they have an existing um, industrial pretreatment permit to run all their waste that's pretreated for for hazardous substances supposedly before it goes into the. Uh, Waste, Wixom Municipal Wastewater Treatment Plant. But, um, you know, um, the PFAS, PFOS compounds and P PFOA compounds um, have, have, are still not listed as hazardous waste. And so for that reason that they're not, they, they, know, uh, they don't um, necessarily declare that they're releasing them. Because I think these can only be, uh, my, my understanding of the law, and please contradict me if I'm wrong, is that uh, they're only they're only required to list um, what uh, official um, you know EPA I, uh, identified and defined hazardous substances are um, you know that's all they're required to report to the government what the government says is toxic and so uh, this is a major of course um, a loophole within our um, the Safe Drinking Water Act. And the Clean Water Act. So uh, this kind of thing needs to be, needs to be. Um, this is one of these things that needs to be addressed at the at the federal level, because that's where the original authority comes from. And uh, you know, I, my understanding is that Michigan State has laws that Michigan State is not allowed to regulate anything, um, any and uh, uh, regulate anything uh, more more stringently than what the federal government regulates. So the state of Michigan was somewhat hampered there until uh, this provided them the authority. The fact that just the fact that the EPA wasn't regulating them as hazardous substances allowed the Michigan state government to do that. So, um, so um, here we are, and I think this is going to be an ongoing discussion during the coming year. But um, um, I will share my screen. I think, uh, Galen, can I get permission to share my screen? Okay, here we go. Um, do you see the green box at the bottom? Yeah, I do. Um, hang on a second. Recording oh, okay. in progress. Oh, here we go. So I got it. Okay. I just still had it in my, uh, you know, in my icon bar. So can everybody see this? Okay. So yeah, just raise your hand if you want to step in here, and um, I'll, I'll I'll work the slide deck. So um, in the general category of improving water quality in the Ann Arbor region, um, uh, the the, uh, there's four separate categories you can think of. Uh, there's the drinking water, there's our stormwater that's released uh, into the Huron River and the groundwater. 
um, where we have several contamination plumes. Uh, we have the, uh, you know, the Gelman 1,4-dioxane plume. And we also have uh, various plumes of uh, trichloroethylene, for example, coming from some legacy uh, dry cleaning establishments here in the city. Um, and then um, we also have, uh, of course, we release compounds into the Huron River uh, through our wastewater treatment. And, our, and, and uh, the, waste, the water is separated out from the solids. And the solids are, are, uh, are um, they used to be called sewage sludge, but a number of years ago, uh, you know, various people wanted to have a prettier term for it, so they call them biosolids now, not sewage sludge. Um, and so uh, those biosolids are spread on fields. And Ann Arbor's biosolids are, uh, Ann Arbor, City of Ann Arbor contracts with various companies over the years to spread our, uh, the biosolids from our wastewater treatment plant onto agricultural fields nearby. So that's a matter of public record um, that's kept by the state. So I have, I have some of that data that I've collected. So um, I'm happy to share that with anybody who's interested in the commission or principally through the, uh, you know, through the water quality working group. And um, as we can um, just look over the data and the information and see what, uh, what, uh, what we might make of it and what we want to bring to the full commission in the near future, you know, during the coming year. So, um, so let's just address drinking water first. Um, so there, uh, as you know, we got 85% or so of our drinking water comes from the Huron River. Um, the water intake is uh, in Barton Pond, you know, upstream of the dam. And uh, we get about another 15% of our standard capacity from various wells, you know, that are around, uh, uh, that are placed around Western Ann Arbor uh, and in Sire Township, I believe. So, what are the different threats to this water quality? Uh, first of all, um, and, uh, and there's industrial and commercial sources. Uh, these are what we are normally called point sources. And these are the ones that the government regulates uh, point sources, particularly um, through the uh, Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act. So uh, we have that Tribar plant. There are actually four um, chrome plating plants owned by Tribar that are up in. Um, uh, up in Wixom. And so they, again, they released PFAS in the river and they released uh, chromium-6 just recently to report that. But, you know, um, it's, it's always difficult to say what else they may have released, which is not, which is actually toxic, but has never been defined as a toxic substance by the government. So, um, so this is an ongoing problem that's going to happen until we can reform um, some of the federal laws. Or perhaps if we can find the room in the state, uh, if the federal government is not stepping up, then we can petition the state government and try to get uh, elected representatives, try to get the state government to try to address uh, some of these toxins, as happened with PFAS. And uh, just to, for a rough overview, you know, the PFAS contamination was not discovered until it was um, added by the EPA to uh, what's called the um, uh, unregulated contaminant monitoring rule, which is a modification of EPA's authority so that EPA can test for various substances that are not regulated currently, uh, that, that they think might be a, might be a 
released prominently and, be, and might be health hazards um, throughout the United States. And so part of the UCMR3, um, the, the samples were collected in 2014 and EPA reported the data in 2015. And that's when and Ann Arbor's drinking water plant was one of the testing sites for UCMR3. And that's when um, the PFOS contamination and other PFAS compounds were discovered to exist in our drinking water. So the city of Ann Arbor uh, reacted as promptly as they could and um, initiated, and IGLA, I, I believe, initiated um, actions to, to try to figure out what the source was way back in 2015 or 2016. And this was all before the MPART. Uh, the state MPART program was started. So um, I, I'm not sure exactly when the city uh, began to install, uh, um, you know, granular activated carbon uh, beds, charcoal beds, basically to absorb the PFOS that was coming in. And that, uh, I'm not exactly sure when uh, Tribar uh, stopped uh, releasing PFOS to the river. But uh, again, the, there's a fish advisory uh, because PFOS will bioaccumulate up to a thousand times higher concentrations in, in body tissues, a thousand times more concentrated than it is in the water that they're swimming in. So even though the, uh, uh, the PFOS concentrations in the water were um, uh, roughly equivalent to what the uh, EPA existing EPA health level advisory was. Um, those numbers dropped dramatically and uh, uh, they've dropped dramatically since then. Um, the EPA last June uh, dropped them from, uh, dropped them down to uh, sub uh, parts per trillion for PFOS and PFOA. These are the legacy launching PFOS compounds that bioaccumulate. And so, uh, so it may be another, and EGLA continues to test the fish every year. Um, they collect the fish samples and store them, and then they're analyzed by the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services over the winter, and usually around March 1st is when they update uh, the fish advisors statewide. And so that's when the community, when, when you can see uh, what the fish, what's changed in terms of the fish advisors from the year before, around March 1st. Um, so, Sarah, you have your hand up. Yeah. Hi. I'll just chime in. Um, so, I am involved. Uh, so, I work for Eagle, actually, and um, I've been involved in PFOS on the Huron. And I'm sorry that I missed the last meeting, um, Steve, where you talked about PFOS. Um, but, yeah, so, like, the PFOS in surface water in the Huron has dropped significantly since the remediation at Wixom. Um, but we're still finding concentrations you know, above like what you should be eating and fish. Um, so part of our ongoing studies is looking at PFOS as a source to fish and sediment. Um, so we have ongoing research where we're actually looking um, at like food chain studies with sediments collected from um, like around the Huron River watershed. Um, so I just wanted to provide a little update on that, that the state's still working on that. Um, and hopefully that study will help inform um, if sediment remediation is needed within the watershed. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Sarah. Um, yeah. And uh, and so, and, you know, with the chromium six, I'll just mention in this context that chromium six means that it's a high oxidation state of chromium. Um, 
And so it's the high oxidation state of the, of the chromium makes it a, a very strong oxidizing agent, which is probably what makes it carcinogenic. However, various natural processes, uh, when it's in the environment, either in water or soils um, or in your body, will fairly rapidly, it converts because it's so reactive as an oxidizing agent, it will oxidize whatever, uh, a, lot of, a lot of compounds that will come in contact with it. And so it's pretty quickly reduced from chromium-6 to chromium-3, um, which is um, not recognized as a, uh, as a toxic substance. It's in fact an essential nutrient um, that's involved in, um, um, in a lot of central um, metabolic processes in, uh, in mammals at least. And so um, um, that chromium-3, the EPA is recommending a, recommends a surface water limit of 120 parts per billion and a drinking water limit of 100 parts per billion. But those are uh, that that's for total chromium because of this fact that the chromium six reacts very quickly. Um, it seems like the EPA has not really established a, a, you know a drinking water criteria for uh, for chromium six. They just specify one for total chromium because I think the the assumption is that whatever chromium six might come in from the intake uh, through the standard water treatment um, processes gets reduced to chromium three, and so you just want to measure you, you want to use an assay that measures all the chromium. If there's chromium six, could be there or chromium three. So. Um, you know, the way these things are regulated is these uh, NPDES. I've forgotten what that stands for. But um, um, if somebody has a permit to release uh, any substance from an industrial or commercial enterprise, uh, they're supposed to have an NPDES permit, I believe. I'm sure Sarah knows more about this than I do. Um, but again, there are, uh, and Ann Arbor, the city of Ann Arbor has NPDES permits as well. Um, and the University of Michigan, for example, has a permit to run its waste through the uh, Ann Arbor Wastewater Treatment Plant. And uh, there are various other um, enterprises within the city here that have their individual MPDES permits. And of course, the Wastewater Treatment Plant itself has an MPDES permit. So uh, some of that data can be found on, um, on the internet. Um, and the question there is, uh, is what is, it's hard to tell what other non-NPDES sources may exist. As for example, uh, it's come to uh, the attention through various NGOs nationally that have done some testing that, uh, um, that actually uh, car washes use PFAS compounds. And so, you know, it's probably in the extra special deluxe you know, detailing treatment that you get where you can make your tires look like new. So they're probably spraying something like, uh, this is just a supposition, speculation on my part, but it's something like that. Like they're spraying some product onto your car, probably on the tires, and uh, it contains PFAS. But it's, it's hard to tell what kind, which PFAS compounds there are um, that are being used for that purpose. But um, I think a lot of car washes um, recycle um, their wastewater. Um, my understanding is that some of them do, but I'm not exactly sure where all that goes. Um, whether now it goes into the uh, sanitary sewer or whether it goes into the groundwater or maybe both. 
um, depending on the location. But this is going, this is ultimately going to present uh, an issue uh, where car washes are going to have to stop using PFAS, or they're going to have to probably acquire an MPDES permit if they choose to use uh, PFAS or other chemicals. So um, the testing programs are pretty minimal. That's why I personally am a big fan of citizen testing because you know prices have come down quite a bit. Like for example, you can get a reasonable uh, uh, PFAS measurement of drinking water uh, for eighty dollars by mail order. And um, so I've used it. I've used it for uh, my the water coming out of my faucet, both here and in a few other homes. And uh, the results I get compared to what the city posts on its website. So uh, the, um, the, the $80 test is not an EPA approved as yet test. So, you know, it's not legally defensible, uh, but it's a very simple test that anybody can use. Uh, and you can order it from a company called CyclePure uh, that's in um, Illinois. So, um, um, so uh, another major source of agricultural. So of course, pesticides and nutrients are the major pollution, uh, pollution sources. So the Heron River Watershed Council has had a great program um, that uh, Rick, Rick Lawson over at the Heron River Watershed Council has done outreach to uh, various agricultural enterprises uh, upstream of us. They're all upstream of us in the Heron River. Uh, they're mostly in the arms of Boyden Creek um, and Mill Creek. Um, which is around Dexter and Davis Creek and Portage Creek. So those percentage numbers on the slide just reflect the amount of land and these drainages that go into the Huron River, which, uh, which are devoted to agriculture. And of course, most of it is uh, corn and soybeans. Those are the farm bill um, subsidies and uh, as commodities. And so, uh, you know, a lot of farmers use quite a lot of pesticides on, uh, for corn and for uh, soybeans. And uh, I can, uh, there's some information that uh, like we, we can look, that anybody can look at on the Huron River Watershed Council website about that study and about what the results were. Uh, so Rita, you have your hand up. Actually, that's all I needed to know is uh, the information on what's found in the testing. So okay. uh, I'll look it up, thank you. Yeah, okay. And pesticides, you know, are, are, uh, of course, because if they're growing corn and uh, and soybeans, uh, both of those plants have been bred um, uh, over a decade ago to be resistant to glyphosate or Roundup. So they use um, many farmers use enormous amounts of Roundup, um, you know, to raise these crops, uh, these commodity crops, corn and soybeans. So uh, and and the, so much Roundup has been used. Uh, of course, that there are uh, native plants that have taken up that gene and that have resistance to uh, glyphosate. Um, some terra, some uh, some very uh, very invasive ones as well. So um, it looks like this practice may be ending soon, uh, just because there's a lot of uh, invasive native plants that have that are glyphosate resistant. So they'll move on to some other pesticide, but of course. Um, uh, the classic ones like dialdrin and other things that we use on these commodity crops um, contaminate uh, most drinking water nationwide. And they do have accumulative health effects. Um, 
So, um, but the Huron River Watershed Council has been doing a pretty good job at, uh, at testing um, for these things within the watershed. And they've reached out to farmers to try to get them to uh, manage uh, the nutrient releases in the river, which besides the pesticides, of course, the nutrient pollution comes is, uh, we're mostly talking about phosphate here and nitrogen. Well, the focus is usually on phosphate because phosphate uh, encourages harmful algal blooms in, um, in stagnant waters. Um, so this is uh, contributing to the uh, harmful algal blooms that appear in the summer uh, downstream of us in the Huron River at uh, Ford Lake and Belleville Lakes. Because well, behind those dams, the river, the water is not flowing, it gets anoxic in the summer, and you get, uh, and you get um, harmful algal blooms. Uh, which create toxins, which uh, in fact, it's a big problem in Western Lake Erie and um, the city of Toledo had to shut down its water system, drinking water system for uh, a week, a number of years ago. And uh, because of um, the global warming that we experienced through the climate crisis, um, this is becoming a much more serious problem. Uh, also because there are more uh, agricultural operations like CAFOs uh, especially that are spreading, they're allowed to spread their manure. Um, now, manure from animal farms is generally um, pesticide-free compared to uh, uh, composts and biosolids, but the nutrients are, are, uh, are, are at a very high level, phosphorus and nitrogen. So those contribute to the pollution um, within the state, uh, especially when they're spread on frozen or snow-covered ground in winter the state allows that and this has been a major point of contention for most of the NGO community in the state here is trying to prevent farmers from spraying their uh, manure on frozen agricultural land because there's not a big enough buffer there's not a big enough natural barrier between the agricultural fields and the river to try to absorb some of these nutrients before they run off the surface and enter the river um, so another Another thing to consider here is a lot of the agricultural lands are, uh, you know, uh, were reclaimed swamps. So they have tiles. Uh, there's a tile system that underlays the soil for agricultural um, uh, fields. And uh, those drains um, generally drain uh, into a pipe that goes directly into a surface water ditch. And so that does not help them out at all either. So, um, this, is, this just serves as a reminder that um, you know the city has signed a consent judgment, consent judgment that we discovered uh, a year ago um, with the state. And the state had sued um, the city of Ann Arbor and a few other uh, permit holders for discharging too many nutrients into the river. So we're under consent judgment to try to reduce uh, the nutrient pollution that comes out of all wastewater treatment plants, and that's going to be a topic for discussion at a. Uh, at an uh, at a uh, at a environmental commission meeting sometime within the next year. So um, another source uh, to our drinking water is so Sarah, you raised your hand again. Yeah, I just thought I'd circle back on the pesticides. Um, so the state right now is uh, working on recreating um, water quality standards for a class of pesticides known as neonicotinoids. Um, so if you guys have heard of like the bee colony collapse disorder, uh, neonicotinoids are the type of pesticide that, that led to that issue. 
Um, and we're also finding that they're incredibly toxic to organisms living in rivers. Um, so like mayflies, um, like EPT taxa, uh, if you're familiar with that term. Um, so yeah, the state's working on water quality standards for that class. Um, so far they've passed uh, for imidacloprid, um, which is the one that's most toxic of the six. Um, and then, um, yeah, there's plans for other pesticide projects in, in following years. Um, so we do have a small program to help um, address some pesticide issues. And I have nothing to add for nutrients. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Um, what about chlorofurifos? Uh, chlor oh, um, no, no plans to study that. Is that more of a human health or an aquatic health issue? Yeah, it's neurotoxic. Control them. Neurotoxic. Uh, Rita, you have your hand up. Yeah, I was just going to ask, Sarah, when you say um, some actions to be taken, could you describe those a little more? I think um, pesticides. Right. Yeah, so we, um, so for the neonicotinoids, we conducted a, um, uh, a sampling plan for the Saginaw River watershed. Um, that was just completed last month. Um, so we did uh, monthly samples um, for all six neonicotinoids, um, comparing like um, monthly one-time sampling to a passive sampler. Um, so a problem with monitoring for pesticides is that they're really flashy, right? So you get a rain event, you get this huge pulse, you know, if you sample at the wrong time, you miss it. So we were comparing different um, strategies for sampling for um, for neonicotinoids, and then also trying to understand if concentrations we're finding in the environment exceed, you know, what we know is toxic to aquatic life. Um, so our results from that study showed that we were getting exceedances of chronic values. So that means long-term exposure um, for like 30 days to that concentration could cause, you know, a crash in the population of mayflies mm -hmm. uh, and chironomids. So it wasn't good news. Um, <laughs> and yeah, there'll be more to come. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. So uh, the third category would be residential because, uh, you know, and this mostly, of course, comes through consumer goods and what nutrients we're sending down the drain. So, um, you know, like through garbage disposals, you know, not just toilets, but garbage disposals, sinks, kitchen sinks. Um, and so this is where a lot of the PFAS contamination comes from because, uh, you know, it's been all the, the legacy PFAS compounds like PFOS and PFOA, especially they've been circulating in the food supply for decades. So estimates are still that, uh, you know, uh, on average worldwide, basically 70% of your exposure to PFAS comes through food or cosmetics. 5% um, roughly comes through dust, you know, through household dust, you know, through carpets and uh, draperies and other things, clothing that's uh, coated with PFAS. <clears throat> then, of course, there's pesticide residues as well. Um, so and the reason I started with drinking water is because, of course, um, most of the regulation in the United, in the, in, here in the United States, of course, is uh, focused on human threats to human health much more so than threats to ecological health. 
So drinking water, the regulations for drinking water tend to be stricter and, and be taken more seriously than with um, other um, within the toxicities to the ecological community and wildlife. So um, the next category would be stormwater. So where are the threats from stormwater? They're, um, most of them come through impervious surfaces. So the city has, the city owns um, a lot of impervious surface with their roads and sidewalks. Um, every homeowner you know, has a roof. Every building has a roof. Every building, has, people have driveways. So uh, because the stormwater is running off an impervious surface directly through the storm sewer into the Huron River, it washes a lot of um, nutrients and pollutants into the river along with it. Uh, because they don't have the opportunity to be absorbed in the, uh, uh, you know, in the, uh, in, in, uh, you know, through through the soil, through um, the natural uh, soil. And in fact, I was shocked to hear this because I'd always assumed that you know uh, lawns, grass uh, is is pervious, but it turns out that compared to like a forest floor, uh, grass is about uh, is only about fifty percent. Um, impervious. So, you know, even if you have a good lush lawn, a lot of the rain that falls on your grass, about half of it's going to run off onto the sidewalk and into the street. You know, no matter how how soft, uh, you know, the soil is underneath, uh, you know, compared to a, a, a well-mulched uh, garden or a native, um, or, or, you know, native planting. So, um, you know, a major uh, a major problem is road salt, and it's mostly the chloride rather than the sodium or potassium. So, uh, um, Sarah, did you want to mention something about this? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, chloride really um, became a huge issue um, with some pretty recent research showing that it can be quite toxic to freshwater mussels. Um, so, in 2018, water quality standards for the state of Michigan were established. Um, since then, you know, there's been a lot of work trying to understand, well, how do we actually implement um, these standards and get chloride levels down when road salt obviously is so necessary for our safety in the winter? Um, so there are some states that have these, um, they're like smart salting programs um, to help, you know, municipalities and public works offices, um, you know, learn different strategies for using less salt with still the same safety standards and things like that. Um, so that's exciting and hopefully something like that can, can happen in Michigan. Um, part of, you know, I guess some work that I'm working on um, is uh, I've been collaborating with Huron River Watershed Council. They provided me with a data set with chloride data um, for the entire watershed. So I'll be analyzing that to understand um, where the sources are coming from. Um, and then with my work in the state of Michigan, I've been, um, I actually proposed a project for next year um, to focus specifically on the Huron River watershed to look at chlorides. Um, so that would include, you know, runoff from roads and collection by the adjacent river um, to see what the connection relationship is. Um, and another issue is, um, road brine. So using, um, oil and mineral well brine, um, to consolidate roads that aren't paved 
is a really common practice in Michigan. Um, and those, those products not only have a lot of chloride, but they also have high metals um, and other contaminants in them. So we're also looking at a project to understand uh, runoff from those types of roads as well. Um, so that'll be coming in the next year. And hopefully I'll have time to present to this group on the findings of those, those, uh, yeah, those research things. Okay, thanks, Sarah. One of the things I've heard is that these brines are oftentimes they're like fracking, wastewater fluids from fracking. Can yeah, you say, I, I, you know anything about that? I'm not sure, like the frac, if we're allowed to use fracking. Um, I know mineral well brine as well as oil gas fuel brine is allowed with certain restrictions. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm yeah. not on the fracking theme, so I can't yeah. speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's something that I think we ought to look into. Um, you know, what what, pra what practices are allowed and which are, are just not reported. Because I've heard, I'm not sure about Michigan, but I've heard that it's a big problem. And in California, for example, because um, um, in some other states, uh, where fracking fluid, you know, has been used um, as contaminated groundwater, but uh, but I ha I heard that a lot of states are, are either not aware of it or uh, or don't really care about it um, about you know fracking fluid waste because you know it's it can be hazardous because of the chemicals that are used, but also you know you leach out a lot of radium and things like that. There are these substances called tenorm, uh, T E N N O R M, which are uh, you know, toxic uh, metals plus like uh, radioactive radium. And so, uh, you know, the states of, you know, the states where fracking has been more prevalent, like Ohio, southeastern Ohio, Pennsylvania, they, uh, they're not allowing you to inject uh, or, or to, uh, to uh, you know, to, uh, or, you know, to bury these, uh, these fracking fluids in landfills hazardous waste landfills anymore. So the state of Michigan has been uh, petitioned to uh, to get these fracking fluids from other states to have them um, you know, disposed of here because they're no longer allowed in these states where it's become much more, there's much more public awareness about it. So that's something I think to look into as well. Um, so then of course there's nutrients coming off the stormwater as well. Um, and this is uh, estimates I've seen. I don't know what, of course, what the number is for Ann Arbor, but I've seen various studies that estimate that maybe half of the nutrients uh, that went off the municipalities are coming from stormwater, and the other half come out of the wastewater treatment plant. So uh, we should look into this in more detail uh, during a commission meeting over the next year um, as we, you know, address, uh, you know, the consent judgment. Because we the city has to come up with a plan for reducing um, its uh, its uh, you know releases of phosphorus to the Hunt River uh, within a year or two. So um, so what other threats are there? There's of course petroleum products and coal tars. I mean this is, was recognized. So the city of Ann Arbor has banned coal tar spreading coal tar in the driveway to seal your driveway. Uh, coal tar has been banned here. I'm not sure what the state's done about it because I think it's still done in the more rural areas in town here. But the thing about coal tars is they don't, you know, they're, they're carcinogens. And, uh, but they don't, they don't, they're not very soluble in water usually. 
So they do migrate, but they'll migrate slowly up uh, wherever they're applied. So I don't know if anybody knows more about that, you know, please raise your hand. Okay. Then of course there's miscellaneous chemicals like window washing fluids, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then um, one of the things that's uh, a growing, a recognized as a growing health threat worldwide are micro and nanoplastics. Um, the Huron River Watershed Council looked at uh, microplastics and they found it's coming from everywhere. Um, you know, there are no point sources of microplastics because academic studies um, on the West Coast, usually uh, published by people on the West Coast, have indicated that, you know, half about half of all the microplastics come from uh, tireware, from rubber tireware. And uh, that gets airborne. And so uh, those microplastics are, are spread by the air. And then that's how they get into the groundwater and how they get into the groundwater. Because here on um, somebody measured um, microplastics in various rivers in Ann Arbor and in the state of Michigan, and it was discovered that the Huron River had had the highest levels of microplastics statewide. So, and I, I well, I'm sure a lot of that comes from uh, worn tires that have been spread around. But uh, of course, there's plastic bags and other plastics that deteriorate. And microplastics are defined as something less than, I think, uh, five millimeters. But basically it's defined as being sort of out of sight, out of mind. You know, there it's plastic pollution that's macro that we see and we pick up that litter, but once it gets down to half a centimeter in size, roughly it's, nobody's gonna pick it up anymore. So it becomes a microplastic, even though, you know, it's not so micro. But all these compounds, all these uh, plastics, these polymers, will eventually degrade down to nano sizes where um, the size of the plastic particle is smaller than a cell, than a cell in your body. And so what happens, of course, is that uh, there's two things. First of all, these plastics will absorb and concentrate various toxins from the environment. You know, the water, um, the, a, lot of, um, a lot of pollutants are more attracted to binding to the plastics than they are to the water. So as water passes around these plastic particles, uh, they will absorb and take up many pollutants such as PFAS and um, pesticides, um, endocrine disrupting chemicals, things like that. And so the major problem of course, is you can drink them, you can get exposed to them. You know, uh, there's an estimate that's uh, spread around for uh, that uh, we all have about a credit card size amount of plastic in our guts. Um, it's still like, uh, a microplastic, so it's not absorbed into your body. But the pro the major problem is once they become nanoplastics, they will get absorbed both through your gut and through your lungs. So there's um, there's an estimate that uh, um, you can definitely measure uh, you definitely measure uh, um, losses in lung function in people depending on how much nanoplastics they've been exposed to. As you inhale these particles, they stay in your lung, um, you know, just like smoke particles would uh, if you're a smoker. And uh, they gradually leach out these toxins, but they also, in themselves, they, they interfere with proper lung function. And so, uh, so they're out there, they're getting smaller and smaller. So uh, it's even if we stopped, you know, making plastics and having them out in the environment, it's uh, going to become, it's going to become an increasing 
problem worldwide is the existing plastic that's out there gets worn to smaller and smaller levels and becomes airborne. So, um, you know, this is a, a principal uh, spur on people to try to, tr to try to ban plastic, to try to just stop, especially creating disposable plastics and to try to stop, um, um, you know, um, getting it out of the environment. Personally, I think it's hard to see where um, we're not going to be using plastic anymore because it is such a, a cheap, malleable construction material. You know, it's in dashboards of cars. It's uh, in all of your household appliances. Uh, you know, we all know how widespread plastic is in consumer products. You know, in our computers, our cell phones. So I don't think we're going to get rid of plastics, but this is where the circular economy is going to be especially important. If we can get plastics that are uh, made that will degrade down to the molecular level, like, uh, you know, the newer generation greener plastics, like uh, polylactic acid, PLA, and uh, there's other, there's other um, plastics that come from, that are used from biological monomers, uh, which degrade down to non-toxic natural products. So if we can get plastics um, made through, um, through those materials instead of petroleum, or if we can um, really handle the waste, the plastic waste more responsibly, that's another thing that, you know, as I said before, you know, half of the half of these plastics come from more tire wear. So in my mind, this like uh, speaks to the need for, uh, I mean, uh, and, and it also comes from brake pads. You can definitely measure, uh, you know, brake pad uh, particles coming from um, standard, um, you know, disc brakes um, that are in the environment uh, as a nanoplastic. So, um, you know, this is something that's a, a distinct threat. It's a growing threat, even if we stop making plastics now and throw them out. And so we've got to really be, uh, pay attention to this. Um, so the third category was groundwater. So the threats to groundwater come through pervious surfaces. So it's the same, same compounds, but instead of washing down directly into the river through the stormwater, they'll get absorbed into the soil and into the groundwater, uh, which as I mentioned before, that's where a lot of the microplastics in the Hound River come from, uh, as far as what is known so far. So, you know, what do we have here? We have the Gelman 1,4 dioxane plume. We have, uh, of course, there's plumes from, uh, late, from legacy dry cleaners and the various uh, chlorinated solvents that are used like uh, um, tetrachloroethylene and trichloroethylene. Um, and then there's, uh, of course, uh, PFAS contaminations of composts and biosolids. So um, I'll expand on this a bit because as you know, um, because PFAS have been circulating in the environment for a long time, uh, they are in the biosolids, they're in the wastewaters and they're in the compost. Uh, the, city's, the city tested its compost in uh, 2019, I believe. And we have uh, measurable values of uh, all the PFAS compounds, the some 47 that are tested standard uh, through the standard high level tests, um, 47 different PFAS compounds that are located uh, that are existing part per billion levels in our municipal compost. Um, uh, I think our biosolids were tested, but I don't recall seeing that data. Um, um, also, they probably tested the wastewater effluent to try to see what PFAS compounds are coming out. 
um, there, but those haven't been, uh, uh, they've probably been tested by or seen any reports. So uh, I think that's something that the commission should look into as well, um, because uh, regulations are going to be coming in the future that are going to make an impact on the city's budget. I mentioned this um, last month when I talked more about PFAS. Um, so I won't, I won't go over this in any detail, but I think um, this should be a focus for what we're doing is trying to uh, do our, our community budget for PFAS and see, and see what our existing levels are and what um, remediation technologies might be available. Um, but of course, the ultimate, the only real solution is to just turn off the spigot and get the uh, Debbie Dingle submitted a, a bill in Congress for the last four years uh, called the PFAS Reduction Act. Um, and so of course, um, and it's in committee and she's been very resourceful in trying to get it attached to the National Defense Authorization Act and other such bills that you know have to be passed by Congress because they're uh, budget bills and the, the filibuster doesn't apply. And so, um, so I think um, I'm hoping that within as, as soon as possible that, uh, that her intact PFAS uh, you know, protect, Protection and Reduction Act will get passed. And so we will stop getting these toxic compounds released into the environment and into our consumer products and uh, food supply. So uh, just moving on to wastewaters and biosolids, um, it's, the same story I mentioned before that uh, that uh, generally, um, you know, it's the uh, from the point sources. If they have industrial pretreatment permits and go through a wastewater treatment plant, um, that's a potential problem uh, for the city because it's getting a pass through, just like the wastewater uh, treatment plant in Wixom got a pass through from uh, from the tribar industries that contaminated both their biosolids and their wastewaters. So their wastewaters ended up in the river and contaminated our drinking water. Uh, but the PFAS compounds also ended up in their biosolids. They were spread on agricultural fields. They were spread on farms. And there was a family um, farm in uh, Heartland, if you recall, was contaminated. Um, uh, the gentleman was raising uh, beef cattle and he was donating the beef to uh, various charity organizations and, uh, and youth events. And he feels terrible about this. So I don't know what the state legislature is going to try to do about this, but um, this is a very common problem all over the United States. And so um, I think it's where it's up. I think we should take on this responsibility of maybe looking at it in a disinterested manner and trying to collect information and evaluate it and try to see what um, what remediation uh, and you know update uh, the residents here and uh, city council about what. Um, about what regulations are coming down the pipe and what, uh, and what remediation technologies might be useful and, and do a cost-benefit analysis for all of them. So, um, and then of course there's consumer goods. I'm not sure what the city can do about this. You know, we, the city did pass a law um, when nutrient pollution was originally um, discovered to be a problem back in the 70s and uh, and uh, because the soils in Michigan are naturally fairly rich in phosphorus, the thinking was, well, you shouldn't have phosphorus in your, uh, in your, uh, in your detergents, you know, because phosphorus is a common additive in dishwashing detergents and, and other consumer products. And so 
of the state, the city banned uh, the use of uh, phosphorus fertilizer and also the use of it in, uh, in selling here in, in the city. In this community, banned selling consumer products like dishwashing detergent that had added phosphorus to it. And, um, and they were successful in getting a lot of the local businesses to not do it. But my understanding is that anybody can walk into any of these box stores. And if you ask a clerk for the fertilizer that has phosphorus in it, uh, they will sell it to you. They're just not allowed, they're not allowed to put it on the shelves, but anybody can walk up and ask somebody if they can buy it and they keep it, they keep some in the back and so you can <clears throat> yourself. So, so, um, so there's that as an example, but um, I'm not sure how far the city would go in trying to ban some of these other toxic substances like sunscreens, endocrine disruptors, because it's definitely going to damage the marketability of our municipal compost and our biosolids. Because uh, the alternative to spreading our biosolids on agricultural fields is the uh, well, you could spread it in, um, in forests or something like that and uh, maybe get away with that. Um, uh, but um, the alternative that's been, um, well, they've been done in New England is most many New England states have banned uh, the spreading the land application of any biosolid because of PFAS contamination. So the cost of the city is going to, it generally costs about four times as much to put these sewage sludges into a hazardous waste landfill versus um, you know, on, on, on natural land, which is a tragedy because, um, you know, because uh, as soil amendments, biosolids and composts are, are about the best soil amendments you can have for growing anything. So this is, a, this is definitely a threat to the city's bottom line, and there's also a regulatory threat as well. So, um, so I just um, summarized at the end here, I just listed some informational resources. I mean, I'd recommend anybody to go and explore the Heron River Watership Council. For those of you who do not, who may not be aware of this, um, uh, I think it was created in 1965 or so, and it includes representatives from local governments such as Ann Arbor. Uh, Jen Lawson is a regular uh, participant uh, in the meetings. She's a city staff member. Um, the representative of uh, the county drain commissioner, Evan Pratt, attends these meetings as well. Um, the, the, the drain, the, the state of Michigan, a lot of uh, the regulations come through the county, through the drain commissioner or the water resources manager. I think they changed the title from drain commissioner to water resources manager. But Evan Pratt is the current person who um, holds that office in Washington County. And so a lot of the a lot of the basic regulations and uh, and uh, monitoring is done through the county the county water resources commissioner, formerly called the drain commissioner. And then there's a local organization of governments called SEMCOG, the Southeast Michigan Council of Governments. And so if you look at this website, you'll see what they uh, what they have on water. Um, and then um, Eagle, of course. Um, um, has a couple of websites. There's MI Waters, is where you can uh, find a lot of data. So I put here the site Map Explorer. Uh, this is where you can find information about um, NPDES permits and wastewater treatment plant IPP permits. 
So you see those are all under the water resources um, um, file system structure and they're on the MI Waters website. So that's a good place to look for information. And then of course, uh, for PFAS only, uh, there's the MPART website is, um, is very comprehensive. They talk about where contamination has been found, uh, what their plans are, uh, what sites are under investigation. Uh, and what the regulations are. Um, they, that's where they talk about the uh, uh, PFAS fish advisors as well. And they point you to the uh, DNR, the Department of Natural Resources webpage, which has all, which hosts all the um, uh, fish advisors. And then on a bigger level, on a higher level, I'm going from the local level up to the higher level. So there's another entity called the Great Lakes Commission. Uh, that study that spends a lot of money. This is an international commission, so it includes all the states which border the Great Lakes plus the uh, provinces in Canada that border the Great Lakes. So this is a, a larger regional organization that um, uh, is tasked with um, regulating water quality in the Great Lakes. So, and then, and then of course, at the uh, highest level, we get the EPA. And so this is where you can find out um, information on the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, you know, which are the major um, uh, authorizations uh, that Congress has given EPA uh, to regulate um, water quality. So, uh, so then the question is, well, what, um, what initiatives um, <clears throat> should we consider um, just around water quality? Um, so we can consider a resolution to support HR 4314, which has been submitted every year by Yusuf Ravi, our local uh, state representative. Um, it's uh, it's a bill that was drafted to re-empower Michigan polluter pay laws. Michigan used to have uh, reasonable, really uh, good polluter pay laws, but Governor Angler in 1995 neutered them completely. So, um, so this is a bill that's been sitting in the legislature. The current um, legislature does not, um, will not even let this come out of committee for, or hold public hearings on it or anything. So because of, you know, um, because of lobbying, intensive lobbying they get from the chem uh, Chemistry Council and the Michigan uh, Chamber of Commerce. So these are the major powers that are preventing a uh, polluter pay bill from getting passed by our state legislature. Then of course there's the Gelman one for and plume cleanup that we got involved with just last year because in October, because this was all under a consent order that was uh, sealed to the public. And so that seal was broken um, last October. And so um, the Environmental Commission had four, um, four sessions, public meetings on this. And so we issued a resolution to council uh, recommending that uh, uh, the EPA consider it as a Superfund site because, uh, you know, this was, this plume was discovered in 1984 and we can see how far the state's gotten in remediating and controlling uh, the migration of this groundwater plume uh, as it's advancing to the Heron River and through our Allen drain as well. So, um, and then um, again, I mentioned earlier about, I don't know what we can do to ban PFAS and consumer products, but at the state level, we can ban the ban on bans because Washtenaw County a number of years ago banned plastic bags or they didn't actually ban them. They just put a five cent fee on them. And, uh, 
And so uh, within 24 hours or so, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce uh, bent the ear of uh, the state legislature. And so the state legislature passed a law which would ban any local bans categorically. So any local government entity is not allowed to ban anything that the state's not banning themselves. So this is another law that could be, uh, uh, if there's a change in the state legislature, this is another thing that could, uh, uh, that could happen at the state level. So, um, and in terms of ordinance drafts, I'm not sure what, um, what ordinances the city could put into place to, uh, you know, to help protect the residents of the city. Um, you know, absent any state action or federal action. Uh, but of course, we can always do exploration and public discussion. So um, one of the recent things that's happened is uh, I had not been aware of this personally, but the Huron River Watershed Council has bi-monthly meetings, you know, where they have, uh, where, as I mentioned before, there's uh, the county drain commissioner, uh, various representatives from the governments uh, that are within the Huron River drainage. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a representative from EGLA there from the water quality working from the water quality group. And so um, I uh, became aware of this bi-monthly meeting. And so I had a number of people, a number of commissioners that are on the water quality working group are invited to attend that. So you should be on the email list. I think I am. I know Kathy Griswold is. Um, Sarah, were, are you invited? Are you on the invitation list? Yes. And Bridget Gruber should be as well. So Bridget, are you? On this list, are you invited? I think the next meeting, uh, the last meeting was held a few um, last week. And so the next meeting is in mid-October. So uh, Bridget, are you there? Yeah, okay. I'm here. Yeah, I am on that list. Okay, good. So these are the commissioners that are uh, on the, invited to attend this meeting online. Uh, it's also um, in person as well, but you can also attend online. So we can begin, we're, we're, we've started attending this meeting. Uh, and so we can report back to the full commission, um, you know, in, in a timely manner. And so then of course there's the city response to the lawsuit. So I'm not sure where the, what role the commission should be playing here in terms of uh, helping advise council and the uh, and city staff on the consent judgment for the nutrient pollution. But uh, this is coming up rather quickly because they're supposed to have come up with a plan in April of 2023. I'm sure they're very active on it, but I think um, I'd like to invite them to come and talk about what their plans are. And then hopefully we'll have, uh, have some information of our own to, uh, to add to the discussion. And then another thing that's, of course, uh, would impact the community is there's the stormwater utility lawsuit, uh, which of it, uh, where if there's a judgment made in court, uh, it would be about a $13 million hit to the uh, Ann Arbor's annual budget. Because this is basically, um, basically the city has been using um, uh, the stormwater millage, you know, to pay for green infrastructure. And there's a lawyer in Southfield or Birmingham or somewhere that's, uh, uh, you know, that's more or less an ambulance chaser that's going around looking for communities where they can get residents to, um, you know, to uh, to add their names to the lawsuit, and so this they've approached a number of communities in Southeast Michigan, um, 
because they think they have a case uh, that the city should not allow this kind of thing. So Lisa, you have your hand up. Uh, you're no, I, I think that lawsuit is dead. Uh, it keeps coming back from the dead. <laughs> it has twice before. So I'm not sure how dead it is. Last I heard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this happened last year, I think, uh, where you know the this law firm or this attorney found a resident in Ann Arbor who was willing uh, to uh, you know to join the lawsuit as a as a as an affected party, you know, because you can't sue if you're not if you if you're not uh, you know if you're not uh, a victim uh, you know a victim of uh, of the practice. So they had to find a city resident who would sign on to the lawsuit. So. As far as I know, that that kind of died again, but I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure whether it's totally dead. I guess the city attorney would should know that. But I'll. Uh, but I, I know the I know the regional NGO communities are concerned about this, so they're you know. So I'll I'll, I'll go through my network and see what I can find out. So um, does anybody wish to add anything to this list or see what we might consider in terms of resolutions or drafting ordinances or topics that we could focus on over the coming year that would help the city, both the residents and the council members and uh, city staff? Uh, I don't expect any answers right now, but um, John, you have your hand up. I appreciate the perspective of council member dish in terms of what she and other council members think would be truly value add. Um, you know, we could write these three resolutions, pass them. Um, and the question is, would they change anything? Um, so I I'd like to do something there, there's a return on, on our time invested. And so I'd like to hear the perspective uh, of council member dish and, and, and others on the commission as to what really would have an impact. No, I think we'd all like to uh, feel we're all volunteers here, except for uh, our city council members. But I would hope that, uh, you know, we all, so what's our, uh, you know, what's our compensation? It's feeling like we're making a contribution. We're making an effective contribution to make life better here for everybody. Well, for example, I'm not sure that, I'll just take the second bullet point under resolutions, that the Environmental Commission writing a resolution, spending a meeting, debating it, and passing a resolution is going to have any impact whatsoever on what happens with um, Gelman Plume remediation and, and related activities. Um, I'm not sure that um, taking action on a ban, the ban is going to also be meaningful in terms of really having any impact um, outside of maybe getting an article in, in live. And um, until maybe um, there is a change in the composition of the legislature, I'm not sure a resolution would be meaningful in terms of anything related to glute or pay laws. So I, 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 all I'm saying is let, let's, let's not, granted our time is free, um, but 
I think there's things that potentially have a greater return on our time invested than passing resolutions that will have no impact on what happens um, in terms of changing um, any of the dynamics on any three of these three, three, these three topics, for example. I, I just appreciate other people's opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, I share that concern. So um, I don't know. Uh, I think it's something worth considering. I'm not sure, you know, what, what value, what value can we add? So Lisa, you have your hand up. I mean, I don't want to, I think people should, if people feel that these, that this is something they want to invest their time in, and these issues are important to them, I don't want to quash that. Um, I can say that the Gelman plume cleanup is indeed ongoing, and there's nothing that council can do at this point to speed it up. It's ongoing on two tracks that are both out of our hands. One is a court track locally, and the other is the EPA. And there's really nothing that council can do to, you know, council has done everything to support both of those. So there, I don't know what role uh, the Environmental Commission can play. In terms of the other two, um, <clears throat> the other two issues, I think those are on our legislative agenda, council's legislative agenda. So we have asked our lobbying firms to work on those at the state legislative level. And certainly um, every time uh, uh, Representative Robbie or Senator Irwin sponsor an environmental bill, the council typically passes a resolution in support of it. Um, I think as John Mursky has just stated, short of changing the composition of the state legislature, those bills aren't going to go anywhere no matter what resolutions the city council passes. So that would be the, you know, it, it, I think these would be symbolic, which is not necessarily bad, um, but you're talking about areas that are out of council's hands, I believe. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we could still provide a public forum for residents on a lot of these issues. You know, I think that's valuable. I mean, I've spent a lot of time researching all, all this stuff. That's why I've kind of monopolized this, the conversation, I think. But, um, you know, because this is a personal interest of mine. If you want to do something more like an educational forum, I think that would be super interesting and probably more powerful than a resolution, because I don't know that the public closely follows the resolutions that are passed by this commission. But I think that my experience on the Planning Commission is that when there is a webinar hosted that addresses something that they're worried about, they get really into it. And so if we wanted to do some kind of a water webinar and talk about the activities that, um, you know, that, that our representatives are working on and our lobbyists are working on and explain to them the importance of these, you know, it might get some people out knocking on doors for the November election and we do have some close races, and that would be an incredibly excellent incentive, I think. Okay. Well, thanks, Lisa. Yeah. 
Yeah, we do. Uh, we do have the power to schedule extraordinary public meetings, public hearings, public meetings. Okay, John, you have your hand up. Thank you. Uh, one area that I suggest we take up again is um, the water quality issue. Uh, I had an email exchange with Rita, I don't know, about a week ago on this topic. Um, some of us, not very many, Shannon for sure, will remember back in maybe early 2019, we had a presentation from the Watershed Council about water quality in the Ann Arbor area. Um, so um, as Steve mentioned, the Watershed Council site is really great. Um, it evaluates the water quality of each creek shed and then major sections of the Huron River um, based on 13 different criteria, one of which is contaminants. So that ties directly to what we're talking about here. Um, and um, what we did is we took the data, or water, the Watershed Council took the data at the time and evaluated the water quality in the city of Ann Arbor, looking at um, the relative size of each creek shed and the water quality for each creek shed, and then for the river, and then did a weighted averaging. And um, Rita, remind me, or Steve, somebody else might remember, I think Ann Arbor ended up at 30. It was 30 or in the mid to low 30s. Um, and um, the concern that I have is that, and maybe, um, Bridget, this is something you can address, um, but it's something also the city should address. Um, to my knowledge, that information is, first of all, not trend um, charted. So you can't see um, how it's changing over time. Um, there are no SMART goals in terms of um, a target that is time bound or a series of stepwise targets to improve that. Um, you can't find anywhere um, on the Ann Arbor website or the Watershed Council's website of anything other than snapshot values, and they're not time-based. So you can look at Allen Creek Shed or the lower middle Huron River and see what the value is, but you don't know if the data was taken um, within the last year or if it's still using data for certain quality or certain um, parameters that may be three years old. So, I mean, I think that's something that we should take up. Um, I, I looked up um, prior to the meeting some some scores. Um, so there is no calculation on the website for Ann Arbor. Um, as I mentioned in 2019 or so, it was, um, or maybe it was probably based on 2018 data, was in the 30s. Um, the, um, let's say I had written down the upper Huron River is 61. Um, the lower middle um, is 39. And the lower Huron River is 51. So if Ann Arbor and its creek sheds is in the low 30s, it's the worst of basically all those, all those areas. Um, and I think if, if we're serious about uh, improving water quality, including a lot of the contamination issues that we talked about here, then it really makes sense that we have a smart goal and metrics and we trend chart it and we define goals and we get entities like 
the city and the watershed council and industries to get together to work on actions to improve our water quality. So that's something I think we could do and have an influence on that would be at least somewhat value add compared to say writing resolutions on something that is either ongoing or is unlikely to get any action at the state level. That's my three cents. Okay. So are you saying, John, that we could get the data that Huron River Watershed Council has collected and try to do trend analyses and suggest some SMART goals? Yeah, and, and maybe even ask the Watershed Council to set goals and to trend chart and to, to do a calculation um, for this city. I mean, all it, all it is is basically um, a, an update of, of any time data changes. Um, and I don't, like I said, I don't know how that is done. Um, and then update that and trend chart it, whether it's, you know, once a year or once every two years or once every X years, but at least see, you know, is, is what's the overall quality of the watershed? What is the overall quality of the creek sheds in Ann Arbor and around Ann Arbor? And what can we do to act on that? I mean, just one little thing, Shannon will remember this. Shannon and I made a proposal to put signage um, in Ann Arbor in various places along the Huron River where people frequent. Somebody, some other champ, John's nodding his head. I remembers that too. Um, and uh, just just to raise public awareness and to to indicate what the water quality is and motivate people to do something about it. And that proposal also went nowhere. So um, hopefully. Um, times have changed and composition of council has changed and things like that. And that might be something that this group could do or at least influence. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it turns out it was the County Health Department, for example, is responsible for putting up the fish advisory signage. And so uh, I, in, in my capacity in the Sierra Club, we asked uh, to help. We said we can we can recommend places to put them because uh, you know where we've seen people fishing, and we volunteered to help put them out. But we were just kind of put off. We said, "Yeah, okay, that's a good idea," but nobody ever you know contacted us. So, so okay. So, but it's worth following up on. It's a good suggestion. Um, anybody else? Care to add anything at this point? Yeah, Sarah, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I um, I actually am sort of thinking in line with John um, with the chloride project that I'm I talked about earlier. Um, you know, to understand different sources within the city, and then you know, with the idea that eventually, you know, we might have some outreach to parties that. Maybe we're adding more chloride than they should to the watershed. Um, so I kind of started with chloride because, you know, you got to start somewhere. Um, but John, like if you have um, like the presentation that the Huron Water River Watershed Council gave, um, you could send that to me. I would review all that data and, you know, you can prioritize based on what they said, maybe a little better than just picking chloride. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I would be really interested in that. That's all. Thanks. I, I'd be happy to do that. It's still posted on Legistar, or I may, I think I have a copy of it saved too on my hard drive. So I'll get it to you one way or the other. 
Yeah, that's great. Yeah, even if you know the date, I think a lot of these are posted on YouTube or something like that, so I can go back and watch it. Just just 30 more seconds on the topic. Um, some of you have heard me say this before, so I apologize. Um, but um, there's a, a cycle called the plan, do, check, act cycle. And planning means setting a goal and defining actions. And then you do the actions and then you monitor the results. And um, if the results are good, then you keep on doing those kinds of things. If they're not good, um, um, when you check them, then you adjust um, at what your actions are and then repeat that cycle. And if you're not measuring and you're not trending, then the whole continuous improvement cycle breaks down. You're here. Rita, you have your hand up. An area I've been thinking about is um, uh, outside of pollution is um, flooding and risk for flooding that we might want to consider looking at. Um, so I don't have anything prepared or, or thought through definitively, but I think it's something that we might want to consider. Yeah, flooding. Um, yeah, I got a personal tour from Evan Pratt with Evan Pratt for a few hours last March. I think it was where he showed me uh, some of the basins of the cities. You know, the city has some major, in terms of green infrastructure, the city has built some rather large basins. Um, you know, there's one down by the uh, Bryant Community Center in Mallets Creek. There was uh, excavated, a uh, big excavation with a, uh, a number of years ago to contain wastewater. Uh, there's also another one upstream in Mallets Creek, upstream of that. And, uh, you know, if you, if you ever drive by, if you've been driving by Sire Church Road near Maple Road, lately you'll see this huge excavation project down in the Lawton neighborhood. You know, it's down south of uh, Sire Church Road. So this is a huge, uh, you know, uh, excavation that's being made to create like a, a, a retention pond for stormwater uh, to try to help uh, alleviate flooding in the Lawton neighborhood. So the city has got projects going on and uh, I think we should have a meeting on that, you know, and talk about that. And uh, another thing I, when I was uh, um, traveling through New England, uh, we spent a couple of nights in New Haven and I was, I was walking around the neighborhood and I discovered the city of New Haven, for example, is putting in curb cuts uh, with uh, reten small retention uh, ponds and natural plantings, you know, between the sidewalk and the street. This is in an urban neighborhood where they're where they're putting in these curb cuts, like maybe every other block. And so this has been something that I was intrigued with uh, for years. That you know you could you could do this, and um, the city's tried this on Miller Avenue, you know, going northwest out of town, because Miller, as you recall, is a really long grade that's almost straight downhill you know, straight down the gradient. And so they've, they've put in a few curb cuts in there, but, you know, they have, it's harder for them to maintain these um, disperse individual sites. Harder than, you know, having a big project where they put in a big hole in the ground and run in as much water as they can. A few big projects um, are more to their budget and to their liking than a lot of small projects, but this is something that, uh, uh, we can see what other communities have been doing and 
and what they're budgeting and how successful it's been. And we try to help city staff and city council, um, you know, be updated about those efforts in other communities. You know, what the parameters look like. Um, Shannon, you have your hand up. Yeah, the city has actually done a lot of that work. Um, I've worked on some of them. Um, and so there's there's actually more than I think you realize that's gone on around town. Um, there were also some, uh, there was one that the Huron River Watershed Council tried to do um, on the southeast side of town that was a total failure where they kind of started putting things in and the neighbors really rebelled against it. So it's a tricky business in terms of what happens out in front of somebody's house. People kind of think of it as their own. Um, and there's a lot of utilities and things like that in there. So the city actually has a green streets program where anything, any new improvements that they do, they have certain standards that they, they um, use to try to make stormwater um, uh, you know, managed in those areas um, more than they do. You know, because right now a lot of the streets that are out there don't have any controls on them. So the city's actually done quite a bit in terms of green infrastructure in the ways that they can. Um, uh, it's not, you know, not perfect, but they they've actually been a pretty big leader in a lot of this too. So I don't, you know, there's there's a lot of things around town as well. It's we don't have great soils for some of this stuff too, which makes it a little um, harder as well. Um, but um, I. I would like to support what John was saying about um, being able to have some better data and for people to, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of maybe hopeful <laughs> some of our ideas that we said last time could possibly advance a little bit further. But one thing that has steadily increased, probably not even steadily, but exponentially increased is the amount of, um, people getting in the water in the Huron River. Um, my office is right above the Cascades and uh, all summer long, we get to listen to people whooping and hollering and having a fantastic time going down the Cascades. People do it from Ann Arbor, people come from all over the area going to it. And um, additionally, there are a number of spots along the Huron River just upstream of there where people are just hanging out in the river on docks and swimming and things like that. And whether the city likes it or not, in terms of people putting their bodies in the water, they kind of don't officially say that they're swimming areas. People are using them as such. And so at the very least in those areas, even if we just want to sort of start small um, to try to get some sense of you know, water quality in those areas. And, and like John was saying, we don't really know until it gets kind of tracked over time. Sarah, I'm thrilled that you like are are excited about crunching data. <laughs> That's like music my ears, um, because it feels like uh, it's. And I think it's tricky because you know the city doesn't want to sort of alarm people at the same time. Um, uh, so it's a balancing act, I think, of not sort of freaking people out about things as well. But um, I feel like like it's something that we can kind of do in our town. It feels like it lets people know what's going on um, and also speaks to kind of larger patterns and issues that are going on out there at the, you know, for many communities. So um, uh, maybe this time around, if we can give that a try again, we'd have some better luck with it. Um, and I know the composition of the water group has, has uh, really shifted and there's a lot of expertise on there too, which is very exciting. Um, so, uh, 
again, the Here in River Watershed Council, I think, has shifted quite a bit, too, in terms of who was involved uh, at that point. I, I don't know. That was probably good four or five years ago, John. I'm trying to remember exactly when that was. Um, but it feels like that just really that area um, that is so intensely um, interactive between people and the Huron River feels like a zone that could be very rich for uh, being able to have some sort of awareness and education um, and, you know, could even extend into things like microplastics. Like, you know, I know there's, there's things that you can put in your washing machine that, that kind of help with that. Maybe they could sell them at the Argo, you know, delivery, you know, I mean, there may be ways to kind of extend out some of these other things on a smaller scale to be able to um, use uh, that, that nexus of, of people and water interaction as a, as a potential way for us to be able to have both education and raising awareness and, and things like that. So. Yeah. Well, thanks Shannon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does that, um, it sounds to me like it would be good to uh, have a public hearing, at least one public hearing on, on the stormwater topic. You know, and we can invite people in like um, Evan Pratt is the drain commissioner who's, Kind of in charge of that sort of thing, and uh, people from the Huron River Watershed Council, and we should just talk about this because this this has been like a big uh, goal for us for a year now, at least. Um, you know, trying to make the Huron River healthier, healthy enough to go swimming in. You know, yeah. and so let's see what we can do about that. Um, yeah. at least yeah. have public hearings and and talk about, you know, the benefits of the green infrastructure. And, you know, because one of the things I heard from Evan is, you know, the city also did an experimental thing where they put uh, pervious pavement down, but unfortunately it was, uh, it was where there's a bus turnaround. And so it only took, it took like a year for it to all get broken up. <laughs> yeah, and so, then they, they sanded it by accident too, because it's very difficult to have one different place in the city in terms of all the processes and maintenance and things like that that they have. So sure. um, they've done, they, but they have really done a lot too. I just, I don't want to give the impression that they've been negligent because they really have done a lot of things for that as well. And it would be a way for them to kind of say what they, they've done, but also for us to be able to talk with them about, you know, identifying what are next steps and what are areas that they haven't taken on that we might be able to assist with, because I think advocacy is something that we can do. And frankly, a big piece of it are people's own downspouts uh, that are running under their driveways and running straight down into the, into the storm sewer. So um, there's a lot that the city is doing, but there's a lot that homeowners can do too. And so, um, you know, that's a whole other dimension to this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we can we can develop an outreach activity as well, you know, to neighbors and friends, family members here in town and try to see if we can, if we can raise, you know, I agree, Shannon, we can raise awareness in the community and try to see, you know, how much, you know, we can at least make people aware of, uh, you know, what they're, you know, what they're about rain barrels and things like that. Because I know the city's done quite a lot of, Outreach yeah. efforts with that, but you know, it's like everything else, you need to develop a, a, a sustainable momentum that might go on for years before you really, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of cultural change that takes sometimes takes generations, 
But um, we can, if anything we can do to accelerate that, I think, both for this and for any of the other more progressive interests that a lot of residents support, you know, like um, like A20, like the whole A20 plan. I think that's there's quite a lot of support here among the residents, but there's there are gaps in knowledge and what people can do on their own. So I think we can help. We can help with those campaigns. I think. Okay. Well, I think uh, we're running out of time here. So, um, John, you have your hand up, and then if anybody else wants to make a comment, please uh, put your hand up. Yeah, I wanted to offer a few um, insights or observations about the Tribar um, situation, if I may. Um, so for context, um, for those that don't know me that well, I worked in, in industry um, my whole career. I worked for the German conglomerate Bosch. Among other things, it's the largest automotive supplier in the world. Um, so I have some insights into the situation there. Um, so first of all, um, Tribar is clearly um, responsible for what it did. But the OEMs, in other words, the, the companies that buy their products are also responsible. Um, Tribar makes mostly trim kinds of materials and then they plate them. And a lot of that goes into automotive products and the automotive companies um, obviously have a hand in approving the design of those products. And those products um, are designed with hexavalent chrome with chromium six in the products. And as Steve pointed out, um, the hexavalent chrome was banned in Europe. He I put that in, I think, in his email the other day. And um, I think it was banned in Europe in 2017. So just to put that in, in broader context um, or specific context, um, in the mid-90s, Bosch uh, banned the any new products with hexavalent chrome in the mid-90s. And uh, Bosch didn't go belly up. The automotive industry in Europe didn't dissolve because you couldn't use uh, that, that product. So it's, it's really um, shared responsibility here in terms of regulation, in terms of the OEMs, and in terms of what Tribar did. Um, another thing that I wanted to share is, um, and Steve knows this because I had Steve look at a draft of the email that I sent. Um, you can get on the Tribar uh, website and use their contact us form. And I wrote an email to the CEO of Tribar and admonished him for what the company did and said it's ba basically a failure of, of leadership and it's a failure of culture. And it's an indication that they have systemic problems, that they've had the kinds of issues that they've had with PFAS and now this 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 thing. And it it doesn't take long for any one of us to get on their website and look up online and say, dear Mr. So-and-so, and write a three-liner and put pressure on the company. Um, but we should also, like I said, we should also be putting pressure on the OEMs, the customers, and also on the feds to, to do something about this. And let's see, I had something else written down, I think. Um, no, that's it. So that's, just wanted to share those insights. And, um in that regard, the Ecology Center was circulating a petition to be sent to the major 
the car companies asking them to, you know, please don't. Yep, I signed it and everybody else should too. Yeah. Okay, well, let's see. I'm going to stop the share here. So let's move on to the next uh, item on the agenda, if that's okay. All right. Uh, reports from committees. Um, how about natural features? Anybody from natural features here? I know Chris isn't here. Okay. Um, I, I'm on the group. Um, I think, Steve, I told you nothing has changed in the last month since you and I talked. We have not had a meeting on um, some of the ordinances that are being drafted um, related to landmark and heritage trees in probably three months. And we should really push Chris and me and, and, and others to, to really um, get this in front of the Environmental Commission. My concern is, is that we're trying in this in this case perfection is the en enemy of the good mm -hmm. um and um having a perfect product doesn't really make sense anyhow because this commission is likely to change things in whatever the draft is and that's likely to be changed again when it goes to the attorney's office and to city council so this is really something we need to get across the finish line and i realize chris is you know we're depending on his expertise um and he's very busy at this time of year but we we really should as far as I know, nothing has been done in the last, since maybe May. Yeah, I think we'll start a big push in November, okay? Because when, um, you know, that's when, when everybody's, uh, when the natural world is folding up for the year, for the season. So uh, let's, let's go for November. Um, all right, uh, uh, zero waste. Um, John, um, Lisa? Sure, I can get that started. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I think several of you joined us for the A2 Collaborators meeting where we gave an overview and kind of shared some thoughts and got some really good feedback from folks. We also launched our first video in telling the stories of circularity. Uh, that now is on the Circular Economy website for the city and along with uh, an enhanced map that we continue to work with. Um, we finally got the $10,000 micros grant that we applied for over a year ago to advance some of our work. Uh, we still kind of charged ahead with things. So we're hoping we can kind of shift that to focus that on some very uh, specific uh, stakeholder engagement work we'd like to do, particularly with the BIPOC community, thinking about um, engagement around circ circularity, defining it, opportunities, uh, business development opportunities. So we're hoping we might be able to use some of that. Plus we're also working primarily city staff is working on a, another grant proposal to the USDN, the Sustainability Directors Network um, to kind of advance that work too. I think what else? Oh, and then in about six weeks, we'll be presenting our work uh, for the state support we've been given through I2P3, uh, kind of talking with them almost a little bit like a competition. We're going to be presenting against the other teams who have been involved in this. There will be a judging panel. So uh, Lisa's been drafting that up, and then we're going to turn that over to some folks at the city to kind of put a final touches on that. I think that's all I had. Lisa, anything else you wanted to note? Well, I think the only thing that you could add is the work with the SEAS team and how that's doing. Yeah. 
So uh, we've also had a uh, team from U of M, from School for Environmental Sustainability working with us. Um, been focused on a lot of things over the summer around community engagement and some of the videos and the map and the whole thing. And then we're meeting with them tomorrow to kind of map out where we want to go with them for this academic year, because we have them through April of 2023. So we're thinking about how to best position their efforts in light of where we're at with things. Like one of the things we hoped we do with them was create a map, but the map was already created and it's already you know, very popular and going gangbusters. So we need to shift some of our work with them to current priorities. I think that's it. Okay. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks, John and Lisa. Um, uh, next up, pollinators. Yeah. Oh, you're muted. Thank you. Um, we uh, have just come through our first newsletter that um, Bridget wrote. Thank you very much. And um, uh, sent that out to the community of people who participated in Nomo May. We've been talking about what our next steps will be and, and actually um, preparing some communications for fall that will support um, uh, the, the pollinators for next year <laughs> instead of sending them off to compost, um, yeah. working on leaving the leaves. Um, so that's a, a project that that is kind of just starting. Um, and you know, that's mostly it, I think. The, although I would say that what came, came to mind as we were just now discussing is that some of the things that we're working on, including encouraging people to um, reduce their turf grass and increase their um, gardened space with native plants could assist with some of the stormwater things that we talked about. Um, and Bridget, I don't know if you wanna add something to this? Um, I, I guess the only thing I'll add is I have the same thought, Rita, that there is a little crossover, even with the, you know, we're having conversations about using less pe fewer pesticides and uh, fertilizers so that outreach that might happen as we get more data and information about water quality could kind of work through this group as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, next up is, uh, well, water quality, but uh, we've discussed that quite a bit. Um, so does anybody want to add anything to that, Sarah, Maria? Okay. So um, planning, next up is uh, other commissions. Planning commission, update? Um, I would say we're moving on to our next TC1 zone in on stadium, um, and we had, um, we Pass that on to city council. I personally would like to see a few other tweaks to it um, as, as it continues to evolve. Um, but that was a big effort. Um, and let's see, I'm trying to think there was one other thing that we had here. Um, oh, I know. We had a, um, a PUD come through um, on on 721 Forest. And something that occurred to me while I was commenting on that, which it, it's a site that has zero <laughs> environmental resources on it. It's totally paved and they're taking down a building and putting up another one. Um, but they're right next to one of the only oak groves that are still within the city. 
And um, one of the things I brought up with them was the issue of oak wilt, which I don't know if you all know about, but is a really big issue that's starting to happen um, in throughout the state. And it's affected a couple of projects that I've worked on. And, um, and, and, and a new ordinance, which might be actually helpful, which I know some other communities around Detroit have done where they actually have an oak wilt ordinance that limits when you can take down oaks. Um, it's pretty simple and straightforward. So that might be something to put on our agenda um, just to be able to have some, and it's not, it's not super strict, but it brings awareness and it's something you can kind of hand to a contractor or hand to a developer to say, oh, you really actually have to plan around this. Um, so it's just a tragedy to see what's happening in other areas uh, with oaks. So, and there's such an important um, organism for so many other organisms, uh, <laughs> pollinators included. So um, uh, that's uh, something that struck me as I was bringing that up is that that might be a kind of a crossover thing with the Environmental Commission um, to think about. Okay, great. Thank you, Shannon. Um, Energy Committee? Uh, a few things. We did not meet this month, um, but um, next month we have a meeting on the 13th of September. And as a sort of a pre-meeting for that, uh, Shannon and I and Brett and Missy are meeting on the 30th to talk about um, where there might be overlaps between Energy Commission and Planning Commission related to the issues of uh, construction, affordable housing, and sustainable construction, uh, and what, if anything, we can do in that space. Um, and um, at least tentatively, I've arranged for uh, someone who is um, the president and CEO of an architecture and development firm um, that operates mostly in the Northeast, that um, does a lot of net zero uh, affordable housing that is also passive house certified. Um, and there is now a substantial amount of data that indicates that um, good design practices combined with a collaborative approach, um, you can actually build a highly sustainable multi-family affordable housing for the same or lower cost than for traditional construction. And um, he's agreed to make a presentation at our meeting on the 13th um, with the possibility that um, Brett might attend that meeting and possibly even that there's at least a partial joint meeting um, on that day. And that's what we'll talk about on the 30th. But I think that might be a topic of widespread interest in the community. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, um, Anne's not here today, so we won't get a report from the Parks and Advisory. So we'll move on to Council. Um, Lisa, any reports on Council activity? Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything of particular interest to the Environmental Commission. Um, I don't think so. I was assuming Kathy would be here, so I wasn't even thinking about that. Um, if you want to move on to somebody else, I'll look and see if there's anything in my notes. Okay, so then uh, there's the chair report. I have a few things I want to mention. 
The first thing is that uh, we're going to have the second annual Trash Talk Tour um, on September 18th. So the entire day of September 18th um, is going to be devoted to a Trash Talk Tour. I will personally be leading a bike tour to visit a lot of these sites. But uh, uh, they're pretty open. There's going to be a meetup um, and uh, um, uh, Eventbrite. Um, sites for, uh, for, for logging in to visit at various sites, you know, they're going to include, um, so far we're going to go, we're going to start at, the bike tour is going to start at uh, Common Cycle, you know, and uh, downtown. We're going to go to Viridian and then down to the, uh, you know, to the complex down there, the Murph, We Care, um, the landfill, the uh, drop-off center, and then come back up uh, through uh, and go by, by the pound. Um, on South Industrial, and then there's going to be an afternoon ride out to uh, um, out to uh, bring your own container downtown, um, Eber White Elementary, and then um, a long leg out west um, to um, you know to where the Kiwanis uh, Reuse Recycle Center is, Reuse Center is, and so there are going to be a couple of booths there that um, we can talk about later, but it's going to be before the next commission meeting. So it's on September 18th. So look, uh, Google it, uh, look at the website. There'll be a website that will be up that you can Google uh, Ann Arbor Trash Talk Tour and find most of the information before then. So all these sites will be manned um, outside of the bike tour. They're gonna be manned by people. And so people can go visit there anytime during the day and uh, check out, check on what's going on at these different sites. Um, hey, Steve, Steve, you yeah. should mention that to participate in the tours or the tour of the MRF, you have to sign up uh, and register on the website. So you just can't show up at the MRF or show up for the, the bike tours. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the bike tour, I want to restrict that to 25 people. So there's a sign up for that, but also the MRF, you know, they need to continue. They need to predict and control the number of people that will show up there, up there at any time. So the bike tour has the MRF from like 12.15 to 12.30. But other than that, there'll be slots and there's, an, uh, there's, a meet, there's uh, an event, right? I think a uh, thing that, uh, that was set up by Live Zero Waste, you know, by Sam McMullen of Live Zero Waste. And there's also a meetup um, that uh, Dan Ezekiel and myself and Sam are working on. We're signing up to join the bike tour. So you can join either the morning or the afternoon tour. And then in the morning, outside of the bike tour, there's an event at the University of Michigan Stadium where we'll get to see people cleaning up after a football game. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite an operation, and it's all volunteer, and there's entertainment and food. So uh, if you want to show up at the Michigan uh, Stadium, something like, I think it's like 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, it'll, be, it'll be a fun event. Uh, it's not officially on the trash talk tour and sign on the bicycle tour that town. Um, but I think that's available for the public to show up as well. Um, and then the, the other thing is um, I, I think in October, there's going to be another fall, like uh, uh, an A20 uh, fair, like an outdoor fair on main street. I think it's in October, but I'm not sure exactly um, what the date is and whether um, we want to have a table there, you know, um, uh, Chris Vanderbrock and Lunia and myself, um, you know, manned uh, a table last year. And, and it was in late September, early October. It was the Main Street Fair. It used to be called the Mayor's Green Fair. 
but now A20 is running it and it's a, a it's got a it's got a different name to it, but it's basically the same thing. It's um, Friday, October 7th. Okay. And it's called the Autumn Green Fair, 6 to 9 p.m. So I'm going to look into getting a table there. So uh, for the Environmental Commission. So let's see what, because uh, we had quite a few people show up last time. And it's a great, uh, you know, it's a great event for the commission to participate in. So I'll send out an email about uh, asking for volunteers to the tabling once I've talked to the organizer, okay? Um, and then the last thing is that, uh, you know, Chris Vandenbrock has uh, resigned from the commission. So we're looking for another regular member. So um, I encourage people to apply to, to be on the commission and uh, we'll be going through the applications in the next week and uh, trying to get somebody else on the commission, get, trying to get Christmas replacement on the commission by September, uh, by our September meeting, okay? That's all I have to say. So the next item on the agenda is uh, is uh, staff, report from staff, Galen. Yes, um, I just wanted to let everybody know that um, the uh, fourth cohort of uh, our A20 ambassadors will be starting on November 2nd. Um, and then also, I wanted to open up the opportunity, you know, um, you know, uh, Brian Weiner from Recycle Ann Arbor is in, uh, participating this year. So we have Jenny Potowski, Hannah Loftus, and there's a, another uh, open slot. And I wanted to, you know, open that up to maybe someone from Zero Waste or Circular Economy to teach that session, the two-hour session with uh, Jenny and Hannah Loftus. This year, we're asking folks, you know, for those uh, instructors that we do choose, we're asking them to record their presentations so that the participants can look at it the week ahead. So when they come in, it's not they're absorbing information there. You know, it's more of like a give and take, you know, more feedback, you know, and uh, more action oriented items. So um, if you're interested, uh, I can send you the syllabus that we've used, but. You know, it's going to change a bit, you know, because we're, you know, pushing the circular economy and whatnot. So, um, and that's all. And then one last thing, next month will be my last meeting. Um, I'm moving on to the Michigan Environmental Council. So uh, uh, October 23rd will be my last day with the city. So, Well, Galen, it's been, it's been fun having you with us. So, you know, best wishes and we ought to, we ought to have a party or something. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. I'll let everybody know when it's going to be. Okay. Congratulations and boo-hoo. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Galen. Anything else from Sarah? Uh, no, no, nothing. Else. Okay. Um, so items for next agenda. Does anybody want to suggest an item for discussion at the next agenda, uh, at our next meeting? Okay, well, I'll develop the agenda um, in the next week or two. Or will Arita and uh, Galen and I will. Um, sure, there were a couple of suggestions we talked about, so you can consider those. Those may be too too short a notice, but at least something to consider. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we haven't we haven't talked about solid waste, so it would be good to have a um, something on solid waste um, on circular economy, zero waste, um, sometime this fall, like October. Um, yeah. 
And so, uh, okay. And uh, all right, so uh, let me know, you know, email me and Rita and Gail, and if you have any suggestions for topics for our next meeting um, uh, within the week. And uh, so the next scheduled meeting is going to be October. Please. Is anybody going to hit their calendar first? Get to their calendar first. I didn't write this down. It's going to be October. September. I mean, September, September 22nd. 22nd. September 22nd. Okay, at 7 p.m. So uh, the next item on our agenda is public commentary. So this is uh, the second opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes. Please call 1-888-788-0099 and enter meeting ID um, 915-8343-9176. This information is also displayed on the meeting agenda and video feed. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand one by one using the last three digits of your phone number. In order to electronically raise your hand to indicate your desire to speak, please press star nine on your phone. You will hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sound so that we may hear you clearly. Please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments and be patient. There uh, may be a delay of up to 30 seconds before a connection is established. So Galen, is there anybody on the line right now? There's no one on the line. Okay. Well, let's wait. Uh, let's wait 30 seconds. Okay. Okay, is there anybody on the line yet? Um, there's no one on the line. Okay, well, thanks, Galen. So uh, this ends the public commentary period. So um, I join this meeting at 9.10 p.m. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Good night. Yeah, bye for now. Hi. <laughs>